So this morning, we are back in the book of Acts, in the series which we've called the book of Acts part two, which we started a few years ago. And today, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter nine. Now, the, this section of Acts that we're going through, 8 through 12, it, it focuses on the early persecution of the church. And, and it reminds us of the purpose that the church is called to, all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It reminds us of God's power that enables us to carry out that purpose. And then it, what it, carry, it reminds us of what it looks like to persevere when we come against struggles and sin and persecution. Now, two weeks ago, we were in the first 19 of verse, verses of Acts 9, and we saw Saul, who we also know as Paul, who was one of the chief enemies of Jesus, have his life completely changed when he realized through a miraculous encounter that Jesus was truly God. Now, today, what we're going to do is we're going to look briefly, ever so briefly, at Paul's next steps as a Christian, but we're going to spend most of the time carrying probably, covering probably what is my top three verses in all the Bible. So I'm extra excited about this one. So let's read through this. We're going to start in Acts chapter 9. I will start in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the slides up here for you. Verse 19. For some days, he, who is Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed to Jesus in the synagogues, saying... He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is, this, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? So they're confused. Like, like how does this guy change directions? Verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ which means he was able to explain to all of them, uh, all of the Jews in Damascus, who Jesus was and the evidence for it, and they could not debate him. Verse 23, And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, luring him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, which is a fun name for the Jews who had, Jewish people who had adopted the Greek culture. But... They were seeking to kill him. Verse 30. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31. One of my favorite Bible verses. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Now, why it is good to get an update on Paul. That's why I wanted to read this. It's a good reminder it is a good reminder because a lot of us in our lives will feel like we have done too much, we have gone too far for God to effectively use us. Paul's life blows that out of the water. He took a man who was literally jailing and murdering Christians, and now he is proclaiming Christ. 
So if any voice inside your head ever tells you that you are good enough not to be used by the Lord, you can feel free to tell them to shut up because it is not true. God can use anyone in any, any place at any time with any past for his purposes as we look to him. I just summed up the first, those first 10 verses just in that. That's it. The next part won't be so quick. I want to spend most of my time today on verse 31, though, because what Luke likes to do, and that's who wrote Acts, as he writes this historical record, he likes to take little breaks now and again, and he likes to give us like little summarizing statements about the condition of the church. And, and I really want us to pay attention to this today because this verse, I think, sums up the kind of attitude uh, and the kind of aim that a church should have, that you as a Christian, that I as a Christian should have. And in fact, if you're sitting here today and, and you still, you're like, man, you see these Christians and you're like, the way they're living, it doesn't look like someone who follows Christ, you are gonna see today what the attitude of a Christian should be. Because not everybody who calls himself a Christian lives like a Christian, and not everybody who calls themselves a Christian is actually a Christian. And so here we get a exa great example of what a church and a church full of Christians should look like. Luke, write, Luke writes that they had peace and was being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I gotta tell you, if there is ever th anything I ever would like to have said about Echo Lake Church, is that it is a church that was built up, that was strong, that had peace, and that walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I guarantee you, because if we walk those ways, we will fulfill the purpose by the power that God has given for us. Amen, church. But to walk like this, we need to understand what it means. So we're gonna talk through it a little bit. First, he mentions peace and getting stronger. Getting stronger means they were growing together. Why? Because they had peace. This means unity. What have I told you is always the greatest danger to the church, in my opinion, it is divisiveness in the church. I believe Satan tried to stop Christ from coming and dying. He failed. Satan has tried to attack the church from the outside. It fails. So his last resort is to attack the church from the inside. Devil ain't got no power we don't give him. But what he does is he takes different personalities within the church because we're all broken, right? We're all sinful, we're all a little off. We're all a few pennies short of a dollar. We all got a past. And when you bring all these people together, there's bound to be some trouble, right? Bound to be conflicting personalities. But as the church, we are to handle it differently than the world. We are to love one another. We are to stick together. We're not to jet the moment we don't like someone or something goes wrong. We are to press in or we disagree with. We are to press into each other and to grow together to love one another. As he says in John 13, Jesus says, by this we will remain strong as a church and continue to proclaim his gospel. And every time I preach this, I see people nodding and amen. But I tell you, I will see those same people nodding and saying amen. And then when they come to trouble and get upset with somebody, what do they do? They start to pull away. So we must be aware of our own sin and our own desire that when there's conflict in our lives and in the church that we want to pull away. We have to, have to recognize it, not give in to it, and continue to press in and to grow together. That's what it means to have peace, to not give up on each other, to see people not for who they are, but to see them for who God is working on them to be, and to have the humility that not everything that we see means we're right because we're just as fallen and broken as somebody else. 
And when we have those attitudes, we continue to press in and to work for the glory of God. And I think if people in the churches throughout history had that mindset, which is easier said than done, I will admit, we would not have so many denominations. We would not have so many church splits. We would not have people looking at the church and going, man, it does not look any different than the world. Do you hear me, church? I pray that you remember this encouragement when the time comes, because if you're in a church long enough, there will be conflict. All right, now to achieve this level of unity within the church, this, this level of focus and purpose, we have to have two ways to view God, two attitudes. And the first one that he mentions is the fear of the Lord. The Bible talks about this. In fact, in Proverbs 1 says, 1, 7, he writes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, the Greek word for fear here, it's, it's phobos, which means a, it's a profound reverence that produces healthy fear. So it's like not the fear like, you know, if you, have a, you know, if you see a clown around Halloween time and you, you know, or you're watching a horror movie and it makes you jump. It's not that kind of fear. For some of you, if you see a like, tiny little spider and you're up on the countertop, right? it's not that kind of fear that we're talking about. It, rather, this is the kind of fear that where you are in awe of something. There's a reverence that its power, its presence causes you to pause. This is an imperfect illustration, but I was thinking back to once where I got up really close to this big elephant. Anybody ever been really right, like right next to an elephant? They're huge and they're powerful and you know they could just crush you. So what does that mean? I was not careless with this elephant, right? I was deliberate in my movements and how I carried myself. His massive size demanded my respect and attention. And I, like I said, it's an imperfect illustration. I don't want you to go telling people I compared God to an animal here, right? But God's massive power, his massive side, his omniscience, omniscience, if I can say it, right? His strength and his power, it demands our respect and our attention. He is not like our buddy that we just talk to when we want to and ignore when we don't. I've seen this before. It's little bobbleheads that says, Jesus is my homie. A complete reverence of God would never make that statement. You don't see the people in the, God, in the Bible, when they come in the presence of God, they're like, what up, homie? They, what do they do? They drop to their knees in awe, in fear of his power. This is the reverence of God. Now, reverence of God, this fear of God, is not based in just his power, but what he's done with it. When the prophet Samuel was speaking to the Israelites, he said, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. He says, with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Makes me think of Philippians 2, where it says, Jesus had all glory and power, but he chose to empty himself. Chose to be born in the likeness of a man. And he humbled himself to the death on a cross. Everything God had and could have done with his power, and he gave it up that he might save the world. That puts me in awe of God. Now, do not get me wrong. There is a real aspect of fear when it comes to this reverence. Jesus said, do not fear the one who can kill the body. He said, fear the one who can kill the soul and throw it into hell. So there is an aspect of real fear when it comes to God. But all of these, they combine together to complete this healthy reverence for God. Do you have a reverence for God this morning? Do you have a fear 
of the Lord. Now, fear is a good thing. Reverence is a good thing. It benefits our lives. For example, you know, I have a fear of getting run over by a semi-truck. So that keeps me from playing out in the middle of the street. Though my dad used to tell me to go do that when I was knowing him a lot, right? Fear can be a good thing. It can cause you to seek God's guidance. You see, anyone who fears the Lord, they're going to seek God in their decisions. They're not going to just do what they feel right. They're going to acknowledge his wisdom and their sovereignty and their, their lack of wisdom and sovereignty. I have somebody that I know right now, and they've been working on a, a topic, and they're studying the scriptures every night, and they're, and they're calling me and say, what about this? What about this? Because they have such a desire to get it right, and they understand that they can't get it right without God, that they're pressing into God's scripture to make sure they're following him. That is what a fear of the Lord does. Do you seek his guidance in your decisions? In your job, in your family, in your love life, in every aspect, are you thinking, man, what is God calling me to do? And how do you seek it? You open up his word. It also produces an obedience to God. A person who fears God will obey God, will read something in the Bible and will do it. Or if the Bible tells them not to do it, they will not do it. Psalms 128 verse one says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord looks what ties to it and who walks in his way. So it goes beyond reading and knowing. There's actually action to it. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he like summarized the whole human race into two statements. He said, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And then the Bible says, on the contrary, he says, anyone who is condemned to live in sin, to defy God, does so because there is no fear of God in them. Are you obedient to God's word in your life? Do you care if you're obedient to God's word in your life? The answer to those questions show if you have a reverence of God or not. And once again, that reverence comes with you seeking God's word for direction in your life and be willing to do what it says whether you like it or not. Fear of the Lord, it produces a love for one another. And this is a love for others that you don't feel like loving. Right? It's easy to love people that you feel like loving, isn't it? But the real test of the fear of the Lord comes when you are called to love people who you do not want to love, that you would rather just punch in the face or never talk to again. But a person who fears the Lord says, look, I was unlovable and God loved me, so I'm gonna show the same compassion and kindness and commitment and mercy to them as I did others. It doesn't mean we avoid issues. It doesn't mean we do not speak the truth, but when we do it in love, as it says in Ephesians 5.21, we submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. It also gives us a, a humble confidence. Oswald Chambers, one of my favorite uh, quotes, he says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. You see, when you fear God, 
You have a boldness like they did in the New Testament. You'll go share Christ with people. You'll invite people to church. You'll go pray with them because you don't care what happens to you because of it. You're just being obedient to God. Now, remember, doesn't give you the right not to be a kind and loving person. There's a way to do things. The Bible's clear about that. But you don't care about the consequences. You, don't, you are able to confess your sins to other people. You don't mind your, fear, your sin being exposed. I mean, it's not fun, don't get me wrong, but you would rather have it exposed because your fear of the Lord. You're okay being wrong. You're okay, you don't fear your shortcomings anymore. None of those things that hold us back in our lives are there anymore because you fear the Lord more than anything else. Where in your life do you need to fear the Lord? I'm praying right now as I ask that question, he is bringing it to your mind right now and that it won't just pass through, but it'll plant deep in your heart calling you to repentance, to change your direction, to live in that area with the fear of the Lord. Can I get an amen, church? Now, the mistake some people make is you only live in the fear of the Lord. That is where you live. You are driven by fear of the Lord. That's it. But that is not what the Bible describes God as. There's part of that, but there's also this other part. He didn't say just the walked in the fear of the Lord. He also says the comfort of the Holy Spirit in Acts 9.31. John 16.7. Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says this, John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John 16, 7. The Greek word here, it's parakletos. It comes from two words. One means para, which means to come alongside of, kind of like parallel lines, right? And, and the other means to call, kletos. And it's like someone coming alongside of you uh, and kind of with the notion of, of counseling or of guiding. And so this counselor, or, or some versions will say helper, it is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and apparently, it, it, when Jesus said this to his disciples, he considered it, and this is a big statement here, he considered it more important for him to go away, for the Holy Spirit to come, for him to stay and the Holy Spirit not come. Why? In his incarnation as man, Jesus was geographically limited by his incarnation. But see, the Holy Spirit, when he would come, he would dwell in each believer. He would be with them. With Jesus there, you could be with Jesus, not be with Jesus. Be with Jesus, not be with Jesus. With the Holy Spirit, wherever you go, he is there with you, alongside of you. And thus they had a worldwide ministry through them. Jesus talked about this. He goes, you will do greater things than me. You will spread farther to parts of the earth than I ever could because you have the power of the Holy Spirit with you. You see, during the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on people. You see this with Saul and David. He'd come on them, and then he would leave them for special moments. But when he was given at Pentecost in Acts 2, 
He came to remain with people forever. Jesus said in Matthew 28, surely I'm with you even to the end of the age. But we also read that he now sits at the right hand of the Father, as we read Peter says. So how can he be at the right hand of the Father and be with us till the end of the age? It is through his Holy Spirit. It's Parakletos, our helper, our counselor. And the Holy Spirit does so many things. He, he guides us into his word. He convicts us of our sin. He reminds us of what he has taught us so that we may depend on his word during difficult times. He, he brings us peace and he brings us love and he brings us joy. Church, we take for granted so much the blessing of the Holy Spirit in our lives as our comforter and our encourager and our helper and our counselor. And because it's so easy to forget that he is there, like there's two areas I really want to highlight. And, and, and one of them it, it, it's the comfort that he gives us in our struggles. Sometimes when we're going through hard times, we feel like we are alone. You feel like you're just all alone. But there's a difference between fact and feeling sometimes. You see, whatever struggle that you are going through, if your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Savior from your sins, and he is now the Lord of your life, the Holy Spirit is there. He is guiding you. He is redirecting you back to God. Ephesians 3 says he's strengthening us, strengthening our soul in our inner being. In fact, he helps us so much that when we're struggling and we don't even know how to pray, he is there. Romans 8 verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And there are so many mysteries when it comes to God, so many things that we don't know. But basically, in this verse, it speaks to those of us who struggle and you don't pray very often or you don't pray at all because you don't feel like you're worthy to talk to God or you feel like he does not want to hear from you, like that you're not good enough. Paul blows that lie out of the water. He says to the point that when you come to God and you are broken, that you don't even know what to pray. You don't even know how to get the words out. Maybe all you can get out is, Lord, I need help, is that the Holy Spirit intercedes. He looks into our heart for what we need and he communicates that to God. So brothers and sisters, do not ever think that you cannot come to God, that you must have it together, that you must be eloquent in your speech or in your prayers. God's literally saying, when you have no words, I am there to help you pray. And this is why we need a, a sermon like this. We, including me, need to be reminded of this because I guarantee you, like me, most of you do not pray even a quarter of what you should. And one of the reasons that we don't is because we forget these truths that the Holy Spirit is there helping you at all times. He does not leave you. He is there with you wherever you go. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us all the time. When we are put our faith in you, 
as our Lord and Savior, boom, you're there. Helping us in every moment of every day, whether we realize it or not. Every realize it or not. I had this revelation the other night. We, we put Ella into a big girl bed. And she's so cute. If you know who Ella is, you know what I mean. She's so adorable. But she loves to kick off her blankets. I think she kicks off her blankets because she knows we'll come in and put her blankets back on her. Little turd. She'll kick them off. She'll kick them off. So what do we do? Maria and I, every night before we go to sleep, we come in, we grab her blankets, and we put them on top of her because she's going to get cold otherwise. Now, she doesn't know we do that because she's asleep, but we're still there helping her. The Holy Spirit, in the same way, even when we don't realize it, we don't know it, he's there helping us. You are never alone. Can I get an amen? Now, he only comforts us in our struggles, but he also comforts us in our, in our sin. Right? He comforts us in our sin. Right? Romans 8 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, any, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to you. So that means if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit along with you. That means nothing else can control you. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You have the choice of how you're going to walk. Now, that doesn't mean he does everything for you. He helps you. Because if he did everything for you, then God would not have a relationship with you. He'd have a relationship with just the Holy Spirit. But he's there to help us. That is a great hope this morning. Now, do we still sin? Yes. James 1 says each person sins when they are tempted and lured, lured and enticed by their own desires. But once again, when we sin, the Holy Spirit comes in. I want to read you something. 1 John 2, chapter 1 says, My little children, Jesus speaking, no, John speaking, excuse me, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. The word advocate here, What's interesting is this advocate word is the same Greek word as Jesus used in John 14 when he said, I'll send you a helper or a comforter, an advocate, a counselor. And here's how it works when it comes to your sin. If you go into a courtroom, you ever been in a courtroom? I'm sure many of you have. You get, what, well, you get a, a lawyer and your lawyer comes in, he goes, and hopefully it's a good lawyer and he reassures you or she reassures you. He says, sit down, just remain quiet. I'm your lawyer, I'm gonna handle this. Now, do you know what the devil is? The devil is like the prosecuting attorney. The Bible calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. He likes to write down, now he and his enemy, because he ain't everywhere, but those who follow him, so I refer to him the enemy, because the devil ain't, devil ain't everywhere, like to write down everything that you do, right? And they like to come to us and remind us of our faults and our sins and our failures. And what we often do as we sit there and listen to it, he'll come and say, Jeff, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to be preaching God's word? Who do you think you are? And we'll listen to it. We'll listen to how we're a failure and how God's done with us. You, you've been a Christian anytime, you know this voice. And we just, far too much, we sit in that. We let him accuse us. We sit there. We take it. You know what we should be saying to him? 
what we should be saying to the enemy? He comes and he accuses us. He goes, our response should be, I have nothing to say to you. You got a problem with me, see my attorney. He'll handle your accusations. And what, and what our attorney does, what our advocate does, what the Holy Spirit, he will point our enemy to the cross. Where the enemy will be painfully and internally reminded that our debt has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. We don't carry that no more. We don't mean there's not consequences for our sin. We should not learn from our sin. We should not uh, be sad when we sin, but we don't carry it. It's not our identity anymore. Not because of anything we have done, but because the work that Christ has done and the role of the Holy Spirit is there to remind us of that work. And then when we come to an honest place of brokenness, he does not condemn us. That's never the Holy Spirit. He says, get up on your feet and let us start walking down the path towards sanctification, towards becoming like Christ. And that's the goal of the Holy Spirit, to make us more like Christ. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You know, we make two mistakes when we come to the Holy Spirit, two of them. Number one, we ignore him. Pretend he's not there, we forget about him. He is the forgotten God, as Francis Chan would say. The other one is we just come to him when we want to tap into him like he is a superpower. We read of the gifts of the Spirit and all these things that he'd done and acts into the Bible, and we're like, I want that, I want that. So we come to him for that. The problem with that is in 2 Corinthians, we read that the Holy Spirit decides who he gives what gifts to. And so sometimes when we come to him just for those gifts, we're pursuing things he never means to give us. I'll tell you right now, if you want to see the consistent work of the Holy Spirit in your life, here's what you should be looking at and looking for and praying for. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control, and so on. These are the things, as you see yourself grow in love, and in joy, and in peace, and in patience, and kindness, when you see yourself growing in these, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because I guarantee you, you would not be able to grow in any of these areas without Him. That is what you should be looking for. Now, some people, they struggle, and I talk about this, and they're like, I don't, I don't feel the Holy Spirit. Like I don't feel, I see some people and they look like they're just feeling the Holy Spirit all up and everywhere and I don't feel that. Now listen, I will, while it is true that you will sometimes sense the Holy Spirit through different ministries of the Spirit, maybe the conviction of sin or, or a prompting of the Holy Spirit to go invite someone to church or, or to pray for somebody. Scripture, listen, okay, clearly listen. Scripture does not instruct us to base our relationship with the Holy Spirit on how or what we feel. Feelings lie to you. Feelings, oh, I'm telling you, more often than not, our feelings are off because of our sin nature. Every born-again believer who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior has the Holy Spirit, period. Doesn't say if you feel it. Jesus told us the Comforter would be with us and in us. And so how do we know it? Because if we can't feel it all the time, because God's word tells us so. 
We're not filled with the Holy Spirit because we feel we are, but because the Holy Spirit is a privilege and a possession of the believer. Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. Emotions can and will deceive us. We can work ourselves up into emotional frenzies that's purely of the flesh and not of the Holy Spirit. You know what I I learned early in my life when I'd come out of church services? That there was a pretty big correlation between the times I felt like the Holy Spirit was moving and how many songs we sang that I liked. Think about it. And if we sang songs that I didn't like, it's amazing how often I didn't feel the Holy Spirit working. Now, having said that, there are times where we will be overwhelmed by the presence and the power of the Spirit. Okay? I shared a couple of those experiences when I shared my testimony at worship night last week. But do not rely on that. Don't make that your foundation for your relationship with God because otherwise you will be on an emotional roller coaster in life always looking for another experience to validate Holy Spirit moving in your life. Listen, as a preacher, I have learned that my confidence in the Holy Spirit is not based on me feeling it because I will tell you, most of the times when I step up here to preach to all of you, I am not feeling it. I don't feel the Holy Spirit. It's not like when I walk up these steps, I just feel this rush and come upon me and you know, I just walk here and I'm, hello brothers and hello sisters. Blessed be to you from our Father. Right? I don't feel it. Sometimes I'm up here and I'm anxious. Sometimes I get up here and I feel like my sermon's just, right? Sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes I'm distracted. But that's where, not where I get my confidence is my feeling. I have learned that I come up here that no matter how I feel, that the Holy Spirit is going to work through me. He is going to help me. He is going to empower me to do what he has called me to do. And that is where the confidence comes. That's where the comfort comes. That the Holy Spirit of God is not dependent upon me. He will help me in all situations, period. That's the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so my prayer today is that you will be convicted in your life where you are not walking in the fear of the Lord. That you will realize what type of fear you are actually walking in and you will realize God is the only one who is worth your reverence, worth your fear. That you will repent, confess your sin of not following him in that area and make a change. But then you will not feel condemned, you will feel the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And you'll say, thank you, Thank you, God, that the Holy Spirit showed me where I'm not fearing the Lord properly. Thank you that he's still with me, helping me to walk and to follow him. And, say, and you will ask the Lord, man, help me, help me not to base my relationship with you on feeling, to know you're always there because your word tells me so. And if you can capture these two aspects of your relationship with God, you will be able to walk in the same confidence, power, and purpose as this New Testament church. Amen.